0: Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, working women and the economy and what we do in the shadows. All right, let's start the show.
1: Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. And this week, we check in on the economy. Because honestly, what is up with this economy? You know, the unemployment rate is still a lot higher than it was before the pandemic. The latest jobs report from August It fell way short of what many economists were hoping for, just over 200,000 new jobs last month. Not impressive and a lot lower than the more than 700,000 jobs that were expected. And that low number is even more strange and more sad when you juxtapose it with another reality of this economy. Millions of Americans are still unemployed, while so many jobs still go unfilled. Corporations have taken note and they are responding, This week, Amazon actually raised its average starting wage to attract more workers. And Amazon also announced that they would begin paying college tuition for some frontline employees. Other big companies like Target and Walmart, they have made similar pledges to pay for books and other tuition costs. But my favorite, absolute favorite new employee incentive is the Dunkin' Donuts signing bonus.
2: Dunkin' Donuts is giving like $300 signing bonuses. Um,
1: Dunkin' Donuts? Oh, yeah. Give me 300 donuts and I'm there.
2: I mean... That's what I want. I know. It's. I feel like we're like through the looking glass in the economy.
1: This is Stacey Vanek-Smith, host of NPR's The Indicator podcast from Planet Money.
2: I mean, I think the single strangest thing is the labor market and... We're at a moment when, like, the economy simultaneously seems like that it is, like, overheating in a way. Like, prices are rising, inflation is popping up in different places, but also it seems like it's behind. It reminds me of, like, when you have jet lag but have had, like, three Red Bulls. You know what I mean? It's, like, simultaneously exhausted and hyper. It's not... It's, so it's you're saying that the American place. economy
1: needs to throw up the Red Bull and go take a nap? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think America <laughs> needs a nap, Sam.
1: So I called up Stacy to say hey, because she's my friend. But I also wanted to talk about the weird push and pull of this very strange economy. Stacy also in this chat talks about a book she recently published, all about helping women get what they deserve in the workplace. Especially in this moment when they're one of the groups falling furthest behind, During the pandemic,
2: this period has been really hard on women Mm. and on people of color and on people like traditionally Mm. marginalized workers just slammed because a lot of the businesses owned by people of color and women, they have less money. They have a smaller cushion. So on the one hand, that has happened. On the other hand, and women dropped out of the workforce by the millions because of, you know, child and family care. And lost 30 years of progress. Um, and that has not really come. I mean, it's come back a little bit. But at this rate, I think um, women You know, you've will mentioned not-
1: that phrase before. What does that mean when you say women lost 30 years? So, What numbers can put that in perspective for us? It's
2: the, uh, the labor force participation rate is the technical term. But it is basically the percentage of women who work. So the percentage of women in the population who have jobs. And it's been climbing for a long time. And it just plunged because a lot of women just left the workforce to care for family and to care for children. And, I mean, this pandemic was so hard on parents. Um,
1: Yeah. Do you see those numbers getting back up to what they used to be once we're totally, Lord willing, past the pandemic? Or are some of these changes, especially when it pertains to women and parents who are juggling work and kids, do some of these changes stay? For a long time.
2: Well, I think so. July was such a great month, right? We added almost a million jobs. Uh, August, the numbers that came out in September, looking at August, were suddenly not that great. And at this rate, it'll take women nine years to get all the jobs back that they lost during the pandemic. But I do think that now is actually a really important time for workers because workplaces are really desperate to keep the talent they have and to attract new workers. And so workers have a lot of bargaining power. And so, you know, getting a raise is, I think, much easier now than it was three years ago.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, I want to move to your book now because it is full of constructive and helpful tips to help women navigate this strange and new economy. You named this book Machiavelli for Women and it's got some Machiavellian pointers. It does. For women. It does. Give our listeners a 30-second description of the book itself.
2: Yes, uh the book is uh about basically women and work and the economy and some of the data that's just been stuck for 20 years but super stuck for 10 years. And it's the strangest thing because we see all this change all around us and all this progress and people breaking into new fields. And then when you look at the data, it just seems stuck and I... Wow. It doesn't budge, yeah.
1: Yeah. You have a whole chapter in this book about how to negotiate pay, particularly how women should and could think about negotiating their pay. What is the biggest tip? Or no, no, no. What is the most counterintuitive tip in that chapter? Mm.
2: The most counterintuitive tip is... One of the most counterintuitive tips is to not make it about money. Mm. Um, one of okay. the coolest things—it's this thing called log rolling—and what it means is you go into negotiation with ten things you want. Ten. Ten things you want. That's a lot. Yes. Yes. Okay. You know, we tend to go in with this narrow focus, like I want ten thousand more dollars, or else. And it kind of puts you in mm. this very narrow, antagonistic space. Whereas if you think about, okay. What would my work look like that would make me happy? It's like, I'd like to go to this conference, you know, in Austin in October, and I'd like to get this kind of training. I'd like to be off this team and on this team. And you start to think of, like, your job more holistically instead of it just being about the money. And then at moments when you sort of reach a loggerhead, let's say you say, I want $10,000 more, and your boss says, like, I'm so Sorry. Uh, we just don't have the money right now, right? Which is like the typical response. Be like, okay, well, I would be willing to make like X minus $1,000 and like maybe get a title bump like, you know, uh, of this or like I'd really appreciate going to this training. And you kind of broaden the negotiation. And apparently the more things you introduce, the more successful the negotiation is likely to be, the more likely you are to get extra money. Mm -hmm.
1: There's so much of the advice in your book, Machiavelli for Women, that is alluding to things that women and other folks from marginalized backgrounds can do at the individual level because some of these structures are so entrenched and you got to kind of just do for you, right? Yeah. But if you write the next book about what the big structural changes need to be to help women in the workplace writ large, what is the biggest structural change that you'd write about as the thing that could really move the needle for women workers right away?
2: Childcare. Child care is just the big okay. one. I mean, the things that happen to mothers in the workplace are terrible. They're sidetracked. The pay gap uh, between women with no children and mothers is larger than the gender pay gap. I mean, it's, you know, mothers are held to higher standards. Their work's held to higher standards. Is looked at more critically, all this stuff. Um, uh, it's one of the big reasons women drop out of the workforce. It's one of the big reasons women don't take part law partner jobs or CEO jobs or, you know, don't Go back to school to get the extra degree to go where they want because, you know, it's so much. So I think that's the one thing that will move the needle the most. Another big one is pay transparency. Mm. Uh, The U.K. did this. So they implemented a policy, I think it was like two years ago or something, where companies that had more than 250 workers had to publish their gender pay gap. Mm. And the pay gap like immediately shrunk their they're like beating the pants off us right now. Anyway, so I think pay transparency and child care are the two okay. the two big ones.
1: Yeah. And pay transparency is a thing that people can start doing whether or not their employers do yep. it. You know, a good way to be an ally regardless of your background is to tell people doing similar work to you how much money you make. Yes. Especially if your colleague doing similar work is a woman or a person of color. Yes. It'd be good for them to know.
2: (laughs) I think, you know, when you reach out and you're just like, listen, I've got to go in for salary negotiation. I'm not quite sure what to ask for. Do you mind telling me, like, the range for your position? Range is a good word. I've spent a lot of years asking people for money or not. Well, Mm -hmm. also because in public radio, asking people for money, yes, but asking people (laughs) about money, talking about money in, in ways that are uncomfortable. And salary range is a good one. I actually talked to this woman who said she reaches out to, like, white men on LinkedIn who work at companies that are similar Stop. to hers. And she said the response huh. rate's like, 80 percent. People, like, jumping up to help and being like, oh, this is what I really? make and – and she said she used the salary range trick, too, that she was like, how really? much? Like, do you know what Listeners, the salary range is? did you hear is? that? It's a good trick. That's
1: allyship. Yes. To the nice white men of LinkedIn, thank the you. The nice
2: white men of LinkedIn.
1: Each one reach one. Yes. That's the moral of this story.
2: Each one reach one.
1: Well, on that note, Stacy, thank you for leading us through this conversation. I learned a lot. Listeners, you can hear Stacey Vanek-Smith, gosh, just about every day on her podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money. And you can go buy her book right now. It just came out hot off the presses. It is called Machiavelli for Women.
2: Stacey, always a pleasure. Thank you, Sam.
1: Listeners, coming up, I chat with Harvey Guillen about his work on the FX show, What We Do in the Shadows. On this show, Harvey plays a vampire's familiar. Oh, you don't know what that is. We'll stick around and we'll tell you. Can I tell you a thing that I've always thought of as in, like, a, I'm going to quit my job and just do something else different if I can get the right permit than donating for it? Yes. Um, an adult lemonade stand.
2: You could call it Sam's. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> Did I lose you?
2: Sorry, I'm just envisioning it. I really think you could make a go of it.
1: My editor is slacking me saying that that at one point she wanted to have a place called Bed in Breakfast where you can lie down and eat brunch.
3: That's that's genius. (laughs) That's brilliant.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Monday.com. If you're drowning in work instead of steering the ship, you know there's got to be a better way. With Monday.com WorkOS, your team can choose how your workflow looks. That way, you can stay on top of your work and say goodbye to work overload. Over 125,000 customers get more out of their workday with Monday.com. So if you want your team to be more effective than ever, visit Monday.com slash podcast for your free two-week trial.
1: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and I would like for us to take a few minutes right now And talk about vampires. We all know the basics about how vampires work. They are immortal, they feast on human blood, and they sleep at night because the sun will kill them. But did you know that some of these basic truths about vampires mean that someone, some poor soul, has to take
4: care of things for the vampires during the day? Basically doing all the... The stupid stuff we don't like to do day to day, like picking up the dry clean, cleaning blood off floors, uh, you know, finding victims uh, that they can feast on. You know, the things that we hate doing <laughs> every day as humans is the things that... Yeah, hate. the things that all of us just hate to do. Uh, I hate yeah. Ugh, it's so time consuming. Yeah, it's like picking up the laundry. Oh, gosh. You know, bring <laughs> a book. <laughs> that is Harvey Guillen.
1: He plays Guillermo de la Cruz on an FX comedy called What We Do in the Shadows. And that character is a human familiar to vampires. Think of him as a vampire
4: butler. I'm awake when my master's asleep, and the house gets quiet, and it's lonely. But I'm also awake when he's awake. I'm always awake. (laughs) You know, sometimes I wonder what my life would be like if I was still at Panera Bread. I'd probably be a manager. What we do in the shadows is this
1: mockumentary about a not-too-competent group of vampires living together in Staten Island. And Harvey's character, Guillermo, he lives with them, and he cleans up after them, but he wants nothing more than to become a vampire himself. But there is something really
4: big in the way of that. He's the descendant of Van Helsing, the most famous vampire killer in history, and so that kind of uh, makes the dynamic a little bit weird in the household, when you have someone who's, who's <laughs> born to kill naturally, and he's really good at it too, but he also wants to be a vampire, so we have a, kind of a crossroads there.
1: Harvey and I are going to talk more about the show and his character and why you should watch, but we're also going to discuss how he handles the nuances of representation in his career and specifically on what we do in the shadows. Also, he will share the story behind his name. All right, enjoy. Your character is very long suffering in the show. He's quiet. He's reticent. He wants more, but is afraid to ask for it. And over time, he gains confidence. And you see it even reflected in how he dresses and and him coming to be someone who can like fight, you know. But you've said of this character, quote, we are all Guillermo. And I think you're referring to a lot of that timidity, is that a word? I hope so, in the (laughs) earlier part of the show. What do you mean by that when you say we are all Guillermo?
4: Well, I mean that, you know, if you look at the earlier seasons, uh, Guillermo doesn't really talk a lot. He's kind of just there uh, uh, by their side, but gives these glances to the camera when they're doing or saying something ridiculous uh, because they're vampires, right? And they don't have pretty much the same dreams and aspirations that we have as humans. You know, the clock is ticking for us. We're only on earth for a limited time and we want to achieve our goals and find love and, um, you know, want a good life. For a vampire, what's time when you're immortal? You know, their goals have already been met. Their lust has already been met. Uh, their, all their desires, it's just on repeat. They can do it every century. And for a human like Guillermo, we're all him because we've all been at a job that we've been overlooked for promotion. We've all been uh, maybe in love or have a crush on someone from afar that we don't have the courage to say anything about it. We all have been in a toxic relationship, whether it be like in the Mm. family or love that wasn't healthy Mm. and we needed to uh, find a way out or navigate through those waters. People can relate to him because everything that he goes through on a daily basis, at one point or another, you've gone through in your life.
1: Yeah. So in the show, Guillermo is Mexican, Um, and I have read that you have been very invested in making sure that that representation is there when it needs to be, and that it's as accurate as possible. And this, in one episode, it involved you cooking
4: on set? Yes. What happened there? (laughs) So there was a scene where we finally introduced uh, Guillermo's mom, and it just felt like they did a great job. The set designer and the and the yeah. prop master, they they made it look like it was really homey and it felt like I walked into a, a Mexican household, which was great. Yeah. And um, we had a, a scene where they were going to be making buñuelos. But if you know buñuelos, there's different types. There's like Colombian, Sabadurin, uh, from El Salvador, Mexican Buñuelos so this is a Mexican household so they should be Mexican Buñuelos but unfortunately yeah. our uh, I think our prop master googled Buñuelos and the first thing that came out was I think it was Colombian or or uh, uh Buñuelos and they had uh-huh. them like flown in to Toronto because they were like okay, well we goodness. can get them here um and get them there and so when they landed and I it was a day of filming I saw them I'm like oh what are these these look good and they're like little balls of dough and they're like oh those are the Buñuelos and I was like oh no no, these aren't these are, these aren't Mexican buñuelos. and they're like, what was your response in that moment? Like, like, did you slip out?
1: Like, how did you handle I that?
4: I was like, oh no, because it's understandable. Like, you know, it's not a huge Mexican culture in Toronto, and so like they. How would they know what buñuelos look like? You know, from Mexico. Well, they would have known by Googling. By googling, a bit more deeply, yeah. And, but... and unfortunately, they didn't. And so for me, <laughs> I was like, it's okay. I'm really good at, under a crisis. I was like, but I couldn't in good conscience do the scene knowing that those buñuelos would be in the background because someone I know, someone was going to call it out. Mm. I know someone was going to watch it. And so I said, it's okay. It takes, it's so easy to make. Get me flour tortillas. Get me some sugar, some cinnamon, and some corn oil, and I'll make them right here. So in the set yeah. of the house. I literally made buñuelos up to the last minute, and so t- the oven actually worked on set. I, I I was making buñuelos on set, and like the crew ate them afterwards. No, quieren buñuelos. No, sabía. No, sabía. seguro? Estoy seguro. She's happy that I'm home. It's good to be wanted. When did you know that you wanted to act? I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was six years old, and I was watching Annie on television. I thought it was a new TV show because I grew up very poor, a uh, single mom, um, and she. You know, we didn't go to the theater, so I never saw like a movie theater until probably Mm -hmm. later in life. But I thought it was a new TV show called Annie, and it was over Christmas break. And I fell in love with these kids singing and dancing and cleaning because we had to clean on weekends at my house all the time. It was we just played it to Spanish music. What was
1: y'all's cleaning soundtrack? I always like to know what music the parents played when the kids had to like clean the house on the weekends.
4: It was like Vicente Fernández. It was Selena. It was Los Bukis. Uh, I mean, okay. like it was all of that. And I, that's what I thought, whoa, we do this at home already. I can be on television and clean and sing. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember looking at the screen and I looked over at my mom and I said, Mom, I want to be that. I want to be an orphan. And Aww, she looked at me sweetie. weird. <laughs> <laughs> she looked at me weird. She said, ¿Qué estás loco? And I was like, no, what, what, what are the, you know, the kids? They're so like, oh, son actores they're actors. And I was like, oh, I want to be an actor. And she said, oh, we can't because that's for rich kids. And I said, what? And she's like, well, I mean that those kids have to take classes. The kids, you know, they take private lessons and voice lessons and that. And I was like, well, I want to do that stuff. And she goes, mijo, no tenemos dinero. We don't have money for that. You know, we're barely like, you know, paying for rent and uh, the laundromat and whatnot. And so she said, but if you can find your way, you can do whatever you want. And I remember her saying okay. that, and I was like, okay, "Okay, okay, so that means that it's not it's not a lost dream. She's Like, no, no, if you can find your own way, mijo, in life, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, "Great!" And so it really taught me not to depend on anyone, to ask for for help. Like, to, if you really want something, go out and get it. And at six years old, I mean, like that could have easily gone you know the other way, and I could have been like, "No, what? That's not fair." Yeah. Also, you know? your mom is telling you go figure it out, and you're six. That I is six. that is some tough love. That's tough love. <laughs> That's, tough love. That's tough love. But actually. Um, to this day, like talked about it, like I was like she she was like that with all of us, and it's okay. really taught us the value of like you know self uh, made. And I remember that they were teaching an improv class at the local community center, and it was dollars cents. My friend from school told me about it. She asked her dad, or mom, and they gave her a twenty, keep the change. I asked my mom, and she goes, "No, miko, no tenemos dinero. We don't have money." and I was like, "Ah, oh, it's not fair." It's like, mm, and uh, so basically, yeah. I was walking home from school one day, and I saw this guy in the park going through a trash can, and I. I said, Mom, that's so gross. What is he doing? And he's like, oh, vende los botes. He sells the cans. And I was like, you make money from trash? And she goes, yeah, if you recycle, you get money from it. So I ran into her closet, got a wire hanger, unhooked it into a long skinny finger, went into the kitchen and got a grocery bag from Food for Less plastic bag. And I started going through trash cans, and um, and I collected enough uh, trash, basically. I crashed quinceañeras to get the twelve dollars. You crashed
1: quinceañeras.
4: I crashed. Stop. Quinceañeras. <laughs> and it took me a month to raise the money. And after I did the class, it was the first time I was on stage, and I was making people laugh. Yeah. And I love that yeah. crackle that it had to it that I was entertaining people and making them forget about their problems for like twenty seconds in the laughter and a joke. And and I realized, do I want to do this? And I said, yes, yes, I do. (laughs) And look at you now. And look at me now, collecting cans. (laughs) If I don't see the Harvey
1: story as a screenplay, as a movie, at some point soon, I'm calling Hollywood myself.
4: Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm working on it already. It's like, that's just chapter (laughs) one.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, it's interesting talking with you about representation and how your path was different than that of other folks as a person of color and I I admire the way that you approach representation with such nuance you know even even to the extent of like your name and why you chose it and why you use it there's a story to that too right Mm -hmm. like Harvey's your stage name but Mm -hmm. Javier is your given name Mm -hmm. what's the story behind those two different names?
4: So my legal name is Javier Guillen. Actually, my legal name is like four long uh, words that always run out of space. Uh, My legal full name is Javier Humberto Parra Guillen, which is the longest. Yeah, I like it, but it was so long it never fits into like my ID, my driver's license. <laughs> so whenever i have like go out to place like, so your last name is Barra, and I was like, well, no, it's I go by Guillen, and it's like, so it's no, that's my second last name. So your first last name, that's yeah, my first, my first last name. Yeah, uh, so it's always that. But growing up, actually, because I grew up in Orange County and then in San Gabriel, um, I had you know, growing up, everyone calls me Javi, you know, it's short for Javier. Yeah. So Javi, Javi. I remember one teacher and my agent actually, my first agent in Hollywood. I uh, was like, well, what's another name for Javi? And I was like, well, it's Javier. It's like, yeah, but like, Javi, what's the uh, English version of that? And I was like, English? Wow. And so like, and I, Yeah. And like, mind you, my first agent in Hollywood was Latinx. They were Latino. And, and they were like... Sometimes it'd be the ones you know. Yeah. And I was kind of taken back and I was a little offended and upset at the time. But in all honesty, in that point in Hollywood, that was very much true very much true sure that like if my name sounded too ethnic that I was already going out for just roles that were like Mexican fat guy number one. Like that's mm-hmm. the the status that Hollywood was putting me in already. And at first I, I I really debated and I was like, I don't know if I want to change. Like, well, I'm not going to change my last name. That's like, yeah. you know, yeah. that's my family. And they're like, okay, well, let's not change your last name. You know, um, well, what about Javi? Javi sounds like Harvey Harvey. And I was like, sure, sure, I could do that. And I'm glad I did because because I'm always proud of who I am, but it's a stage name. And a stage name is a performer. And so uh, when I go into a room, if you know me by my legal name, I know that I have a history with you and you're almost family to me. And when I'm at work and I'm in public, it's Harvey. And I can divide those two worlds because I don't want them Mm. to get mixed up. Yeah.
1: So back to the show, your character Guillermo on What We Do in the Shadows – Uh, He's a descendant of a legendary vampire slayer, even as he is functioning as the familiar to some vampires in the show. But over the course of the show, Guillermo becomes very gifted at killing enemy vampires, like throwing wooden stakes, engaging in lethal combat. He becomes, over the course of the show, as powerful in some ways as the vampires themselves. It's a beautiful trajectory. Um, How much of that path, you know, growing stronger every season that we see in Guillermo? Do you see in, I don't know, perhaps your life or the track of your own career?
4: Yeah. I, I love, you know, finding similarities with Guillermo's journey and my personal journey just uh, uh, at different times in our lives. You know, I put my own personal experience in Hollywood into that storyline with Guillermo because, I, for so long, you know, you wait your turn, you wait your turn, and then you get tired of waiting. And then you're tired of asking for permission and asking for someone to, uh, feel comfortable around you in your brownness and your queerness and your roundness. And so at the end of the day, it's like, I'm not waiting for you to be comfortable, uh, for me to be comfortable in my own skin. You're going to have to adapt to being comfortable because I'm comfortable.
1: You better preach.
4: (laughs) Put that sermon on a DVD and sell it
1: to me. (laughs) I like it. Well, thank you so much. Um, It was a joy talking with you. Listeners, check out what we do in the shadows on FX, on Hulu, right now. Uh, Will you stick around to play a little game with us after the break? It's called Who Said That?
4: Yeah, let's do it. Let's play.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lincoln Financial pursuing your dreams starts with financial security. Lincoln can help you get started. Whether it's protecting you and your family from life's unexpected events or planning for retirement, Lincoln can help you enjoy today while staying on track for tomorrow. Visit lfg.com slash get started to discover how Lincoln Financial Solutions can help you plan, protect, and retire. Lincoln Financial is the marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and Affiliates. Copyright 2021. This message comes from NPR sponsor Madewell. Good days start with great jeans. The denim experts at Madewell use premium fabric and the latest denim technology to make super comfy, never-want-to-take-them-off jeans in fits and styles for everyone. In other words, your perfect pair is waiting. Ready to step up your denim game? Visit Madewell.com and use the code Denim for $20 off your online jeans purchase. Terms apply. See Madewell.com slash promos for full offer details.
1: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and I'm here with Harvey Guillen. He is one of the stars of the FX vampire mockumentary show, What We Do in the Shadows. And he's joined for this segment by his friend, actor and writer, Tim Rock. All right, I want you both to play my favorite game with me. It is called Who Said That? So, Harvey, my question for you before we start this game, why'd you pick Tim to compete against?
4: Um, well, I didn't pick Tim to compete against. I picked him because he and I have a great rapport. And, uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Look at you, Mr. Diplomatic.
1: Okay.
4: Um, and I, he's just one of the funniest people I know. So I just saw him in Savannah when I was there and, uh, and was like, yeah, if anyone knows how to have a good time, it's Tim. Timmy O'Toole.
1: <laughs> Did you also pick him because you think you can beat him?
4: Absolutely. That was the, my main focus. Uh, my main focus was that. And Tim, you're going down. I think we can we can both agree we're, we're not here to make friends.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
3: I love it. I love it.
1: Um, so with that, let's uh, get started. I'm going to share three quotes from this week of news. Guess who said the quote or what story I'm talking about. We don't have buzzers or timers. Just yell out your answers. We don't really have an umpire or referee for this, and I'm bad at keeping score, so we might not even remember who wins by the end of it, but it's okay. Either way, I'll give you hints, and... None of this matters because there is no prize.
4: We're out. Sorry. Uh, We were told there'd be. (laughs) Gotta go. Sorry. I actually do have a call coming through. Uh, Yeah. I think we
1: have show t-shirts that we might be able to send you. I actually... Okay. We're back in business. We're back in business. (laughs) Okay. Now we're talking. Here's the first quote. When you know who said it, just yell out the answer. The quote is, make him sign a prenup.
4: Uh, oh, that was oh, oh that was a uh, 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 Oscar winner, uh, Oscar winner from The Help,
3: Britney Spears, uh, uh, Viola, her husband. No, 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 no. Not Viola uh, Davis, Harvey. Not Viola Davis. Uh, uh. Um, Olivia. No, it's an O name. It's an O. Uh, Octavia, Octavia Spencer. Spencer.
4: Octavia Spencer. Ooh. Octavia Spencer. Ooh. Yeah,
1: ooh. That was maybe a tie. I'm gonna consult my team.
4: No, uh, no, I, I got, won. Me, <laughs> I won. Oh man, give it to ooh. Harvey. Give it to know. Harvey.
1: My colleagues say it sounds like a tie. It's a photo finish, but maybe Harvey, because you were louder. Yeah, that's what that's that Those sounds like. Right.
3: Harvey will always be louder.
1: <laughs> so, that said, this quote comes from Oscar winning actress Octavia Spencer. She was making an Instagram comment on a Britney Spears Instagram post announcing her engagement. Britney Spears has gotten engaged. I, for one, am happy about it. But Octavia, in her infinite wisdom, wrote, Make him sign a prenup, given all that Britney Spears has gone through and what she's experienced at the hands of not-so-nice men around her. Later on, Octavia said, I was just kidding. The new fiancé wrote back and said, you're kind to clarify, but no hard feelings. Jokes come with the territory.
3: How do we feel about this? Sign the prenup. (laughs) Sign the prenup. Sign the prenup. You would be out of your mind not to sign that prenup. Yeah. All right, we're going to go
1: on to the next quote. Here we go. We are changing the format to remove the competitive element and reimagining the concept into a primetime documentary special. It will showcase the tireless work of six activists and the impact they have advocating for causes they deeply believe in. Who said that? Julianne Huff. She's part of the team that said that, so we'll give it to you. Ah. Yes. Uh, you get that point. What is this story? Tell our listeners.
3: Uh, they, were, they decided to, in their infinite wisdom, those who run Hollywood, make a reality television show called The Activist. Where uh, a group of activists would compete in challenges to, I think, uh, raise money? And possibly help people. I mean, it was such a bad idea. Such so, a this TV idea. show was announced last
1: week. And we should say that statement, uh, that quote comes from CBS Global Citizen Live Nation. They issued a statement saying that after widespread backlash to the concept of this show called The Activist, they are changing the format to not be as horrible. Anywho, the original announcement for this show was set to have three celebrity judges, Usher, Priyanka Chopra, and Julianne Hough, uh, judging quote-unquote activists in an activism competition show. These activists would go head-to-head in challenges to promote their causes, and their success— would be measured via online engagement and social metrics. My goodness.
3: I'm crying. I'm crying. (laughs) Why? Just the worst way way to judge that. The absolute worst way to judge the effectiveness of an activist.
4: And the swimsuit edition. They have to wear a swimsuit (laughs) too.
3: (laughs) What did y'all think when y'all first saw the announcement for the show itself?
4: I, I mean, at this point... I'm not even shocked. I think it was at this point, it was like, oh, yeah, that sounds very uh, timely. Like, that's the next, that's where we're going as a society.
3: (laughs) It feels like a parody, honestly. Like, how anyone thought that that could be a good idea is just beyond me.
1: What's crazy is the number of people who should have known better that got involved in this. On top of Usher saying yes to this show, with no experience as an activist, um, the G20 got involved. So... Three of the six activists, were they to be chosen, they were going to get to go to the G20 summit in Rome at the end of October and meet with world leaders. Stop. G20, you should know better.
4: Wow. That is
1: ludicrous. Anywho. I don't know who got that point. Who got that point? Someone tell me.
4: I think it was Tim. So it's tied. Ooh. Uh, In that case, I think it was me. Uh, I think it was me. uh,
1: uh, Oh, come on. This last one, I know y'all are going to know, so this will all be about just having trigger fingers. Yell out the answer as soon as you know. Here's a quote. They want you to get vaccinated for the match. Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj! Yeah. Ooh!
3: (laughs) Tim, you won. Uh. Harvey, Harvey, you could have gotten that point if you just looked up Sam's Twitter. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, it's not fair. Oh, God, okay.
3: Do y'all know this story?
1: It has oh, taken yes. over my life this week. Yes. Tell our listeners what's going on.
4: So I think Nicki Minaj went on social, on her social platforms and said, or Twitter specifically, and said um, she wasn't attending the Met Gala and they want you to get uh, vaccinated for the Met Gala. But she uh, is not vaccinated, I'm assuming, because she's so so, uh, against it. (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: uh, the Met Gala happened this week and it was especially absurd this year, in my opinion. However... Nicki Minaj, who was maybe going to go, said, I'm not going to go. Uh, She tweeted, quote, they want you to get vaccinated for the Met. If I get vaccinated, it won't be for the Met. It'll be once I feel I've done enough research. I'm working on that now. In the meantime, my loves, be safe. Wear the mask with two strings that grips your head and face. Not that (sighs) loose one. So she starts there, and that's bad enough. But then she keeps on tweeting about a friend of a friend of a cousin who had some problems with his downstairs parts after the vaccine. Nicki Minaj wrote, quote, My cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. Get a prenup. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Best callback of the game that I've ever heard. Yes. So that's crazy enough, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The health minister of Trinidad and Tobago chimes in and responds to this swollen testicle claim by saying on camera. As we stand now,
3: there is absolutely no reported such side effect or adverse event of testicular swelling in Trinidad, or I dare say, none that we know of anywhere else in the world.
1: He's not the only one. Tucker Carlson ends up defending Nicki Minaj on his Fox News no, show. Fine. It's Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testicles who are sworn from taking the vax. That's the claim. And hearing Tucker Carlson utter the words, Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testicles, <laughs> it makes your head explode. <laughs> it really does. Uh, or Just your testicles. Tucker
4: Carlson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then it went on. Nicki Minaj got into some kind of fight with Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, because he was dismissing her <laughs> tweets about the vaccine. And then Nicki said, in like this weird, weird accent.
2: I'm actually British. Um, I was born there. I, I went to university there. I went to Oxford. Um, I went to school with Margaret Thatcher.
3: What?
1: What? What? What and mean? it went on and it went on. Y'all, can I just like this story? This is like the Russian nesting doll story. Like For there's sure. another layer everywhere you turn. After this, Nicki Minaj then tweets that she has been invited to the White House to talk about COVID. No, ma'am, she has not. And guess what, dear listeners? Yeah, she wasn't. And that was a lie. The White House had to come out and say, we've offered Nicki a call with the doctor to answer her vaccine <laughs> questions. <laughs> But she ain't coming to this house.
4: (laughs) We offered her a call. Stay away from us.
3: (laughs) So, Tim, I think you won the game. How does it feel? It feels okay, but I will split my winnings with Harvey. So, should I just give you my bank account number and you can just send
4: the funds there? I think we're splitting the shirt. So, we have to cut the shirt in the middle, the the t shirt in half. (laughs) I'll I'll take take the, the lower half. Great. I'll, I'll just wear it as a crop
1: top the next time I see you, Harvey. Uh, Tim, Harvey, tell our listeners once again who you are and where
3: they can find your stuff. Tim Rock, on the internet. Full <laughs> stop.
4: <laughs> Harvey? Harvey Guillen, by the same name. Call me by that name on the internet as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank y'all both for hanging
1: out. This was super fun. Come back again, and maybe next time, Harvey, you'll
3: do better.
4: Ooh. Ooh, you sound like my parents. Get it, get it.
3: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Love you, Harvey. Love you.
0: Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
2: Hi Sam, this is Dana on the north shore of Oahu and the best thing that happened to me this week was that I finally moved in with my partner Lewis after a year of long distance and many, many love letters. We finally made it and I couldn't be happier.
1: Hi Sam, this is Jesse from Orange County, California. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I completed my hike along the Pacific Crest Trail, a 2,650 mile trail that goes from Mexico to Canada through
4: California, Oregon, and Washington. And after over five months of backpacking, I just so happened to finish on my birthday.
3: The best part of my week was that I finally got to marry my best friend. We planned on getting married in September 2020, but like so many others, had to postpone due to COVID. There was a lot of work and stress leading up to the big day, including ensuring all of our guests were fully vaccinated, but I'm so happy to have taken this next step with a woman I love. Claudia, you're always the best part of my week, and I love you so much.
0: The best part of my week was there was so much to celebrate in my family. My daughter loves her new middle school, my son is thriving homeschooling, and we received news that my husband remains cancer-free after undergoing six months of chemo
2: last year. It was
4: just a great week. Hi, Sam. It's Stephanie in
2: South Lake Tahoe, California. And the absolute most amazing part of my week was being able to come home after we'd all been evacuated from town because of the Caldor fire. And miraculously, we're all here, and the town is still standing. And I'm just so grateful and thank you to every firefighter on the planet. (laughs) We're all so grateful here in South Lake Tahoe. Thanks for the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.
1: Thanks again to all those listeners you just heard. Dana, Jesse, Tom, Sarah, and Stephanie. Listeners, you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. We still love hearing from you. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to samsanders at npr.org. At samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week It's been a minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Andre Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.